Hey, buddies, fellow Franco fans. It is I, your host, Jason Rudy, from Desperate Visions Productions, a Sacramento, California-based filmmaking group that I am uh, in charge of, I guess, my production company. And uh, right now I'm on a little bit of a a holiday hiatus from editing, but going to get back on the editing board and uh, start back up again on um, Lady Hyde and on uh, Emmanuel and Sin City. Been also uh, busting out some uh, paintings again. Been finishing up the year uh, as I record this, uh, doing some Lena Romay uh, canvas drawings and paintings, some 16 by 20 sizes, and uh, going to work on some other people from the Franco universe as well um, in the next few days, few months, and so on and so forth. So be on the lookout for those as well. And you can always see those on the Franco Observer podcast. Uh, Facebook page and the Instagram page, so uh, definitely add us and all that, and uh, you can see all the work that I've been doing on that. So, this is the first episode, uh, episode 69, of course, uh, and this is a double feature episode like the last episode. Uh, last episode, 68, we had the double feature of the first two Jess Franco films uh, under his directorial belt. And for this one, uh, episode 69, for the first episode of the new year, 2022, double two, so this is a double feature, we cover films three and four. And this, film three, La Reina del Tabarin, uh, The Queen of the Tabarin, um, I watched, and uh, so I'm going to start up this portion, the... uh, interview and information portion and then uh, on this one I am doing a solo review and I'm having a friend uh, from one of my older films uh, Willie is going to stop in and uh, talk to me a little bit about the film because he had seen the film uh, before and um, we talk about that so all right well here is uh, yeah so and then also too and then the second half of the episode will um, feature film four uh, Vampiresses 1930 or Gold Diggers of 1930, it's also known as. So, All right, so for this, film three, La Reina de Tabarin, The Queen of the Tabarin. Uh, Spain and France, 1960. Alternative titles, Marquita, La Bella de Tabarin, French theatrical. Marquita, French C&C visa listing. Uh, French theatrical re-release is known as La Bella de Tabarin. Uh, French alternative theatrical poster is uh, La Marquita, and then Marquita de Chavon van Tabarin from Belgium. Uh, production company on this is uh, CIF ESA Production out of Valencia, and uh, His Spammer Films, SA out of Madrid. French version adds Eurocene Paris. Uh, theatrical distribution, CIF ESA out of Valencia, and Eurocene out of Paris. Timeline shooting date, uh, 1960. Classified for Spanish release is on November 12th of 1960. And uh, Madrid, 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 yeah, Madrid premiere, November 14th, 1960. Uh, Seville, November 24th, 1960. Then played Barcelona, August 1st of 1961, just a little under a year later. And then uh, wrapping up, France, October 1st, 1961. French visa issued November 2nd of 61. 
then played Belgium, Brussels, uh, April 13th of 1962, and the French re-release of this was November 12th of 1968. So, yeah, about a whole six years later. Uh, well, yeah, seven years in France. Uh, theatrical running times, 100 minutes in Spain and 90 minutes in France. Note the French video version. Um, here's the authentic on-screen role. Okay, never mind. I don't care about that. All right, so... Um, oh, yeah, once again... Uh, this information is taken from the book Murderous Passions, The Delirious Cinema of Jesus Franco, Volume 1 by Mr. Stephen Thrower. I think it's still available. Check it out. It's always a great uh, source of information, uh, and it's well worth the price. All right. Uh, cast on this. Uh, she has just one name like Cher or Madonna, and it's Michaela, M-I-K-A-E-L-A, also known as Michaela Rodriguez Cuesto. She plays Lolita, the main actress, also known as Lola Miranda. Uh, also featured in the film, not going to go through all the credits, just some of the mains. Um, Yves Messard plays Roberto, a.k.a. Fernando de Alicantra. Uh, Juan Ricoele plays Miguel. Antonio Garisa, one of my favorites in this film, plays Pepe, Lolita's guardian. Uh, Pepe kind of looks like my friend Willie, so anyway. Uh, Daniela Godart uh, plays Monique de Seguiar. Monish Lapina play in uh, let's see in Guadalupe Munoz Imperdo plays Mercedes Julio Rescal Rodolfo's friend at cafe. Uh, Dora Dahl plays cabaret singer. Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, so anyway, uh, quite a huge cast on this actually compared to other Franco films. Um, okay, credits: uh, director Jess Franco, story Maria Ace Saparto, Ernesto. Arana Sibia, screenplay Luis, Lucas Ojedo, and Jose Gerardo, dialogue Jess Franco, French adaptation Genevieve Reus, um, editors Alfonso Santacana, and uh, quite a few on this, orchestra, settings and wardrobe, assistant art director, property manager, dressmaker, makeup, makeup assistant, hairstylist, wow, it's quite a... Wow, okay, he has quite a cast on this of crew as well. Probably the biggest in his life. All right, so I'm going to skip. Um, you know, since this is a solo one, I'm going to go ahead and run the synopsis on this part and then do my review at the end. So, All right, synopsis, Madrid, 1913. Lola is a street dancer and singer who performs with her legal guardian, Pepe, on barrel organ, her friend Miguel on guitar, and her brother passing the plate. Eager to advance her singing career, Lola responds to an invitation from Arturo de Castillo, theatrical impresario, but walks out when Castillo's associates treat her crudely. Deciding that she will, deciding that she will promote herself, Lola sneaks into a masked ball being held at the home of the Marchinius del Alicantra and presents herself as one of the entertainers. Her traditional song and dance number is greeted with enthusiastic applause. There she meets the roguish Fernando de Alicantra, son of the Marchioness, who is posing as one of the servants. A romantic, a romance develops, and despite his prior philandering, Fernando falls in love. When the Marinus hears of this, she visits Lola, 
telling her of Fernando's true identity and his habitual womanizing. Lola confronts Fernando, who declares his love and promises to visit Pepe the following day to ask for permission to marry. However, after being injured in a duel with a man called Randolfo, who impugned Lola's honor, he's unable to make the rendezvous. Lola assumes that Fernando's heart was not true, and soon after accepts an offer from French impresario Charles Legrand, or, uh, Charles Levon, to sing in Paris. At last, Lola achieves her dream, making her debut on the Paris stage at the legendary Tabarin Theatre. Fernando, now recovered enough to travel, learns of her celebrity and attends her debut show. Lola's performance is a huge success and marks the beginning of an illustrious career on stage. With help from Miguel, Fernando convinces Lola that his love is genuine and the two walk off into the dawn. All right, production notes. Uh, with Lola, with Labio Rojos apparently following uh, Tenemos 18 Enos into obscurity, a fate which couldn't have helped Franco's relationship with girlfriend Isana Midel, who starred in both, a golden opportunity came with an offer from producer Sergio Newman to replace Leon Kimovsky as director of an upcoming musical, La Reina de Tabarin. Shooting was due to start immediately, and Franco jumped at the chance. The film was designed to show off the talents of Michelia, a singer in the popular cupola tradition. Inspiration came from the Spanish El Ultimo Cupo, an award-winning commercial smash about two lovers who sing couples and the French tabarin, considering romantic intrigue in and around the eponymous French Music Hall. All right, review. A film that follows its central character from dust-streaked poverty to candy-colored uptown opulence, La Reina de Tabarin is an undemanding rags-to-riches story with a sweet center. It features Andalusian Andalusian singing sensation Michelia as Lola, a poor Spanish girl with a marvelous voice who dreams of living the high life. In light of Jess Franco's later career, it's something of an aberration, shot in a staid bourgeois style that lacks many of the director's signature touches, but it's worth a look to see him helming a mainstream movie and a musical at that so early in his career. Intended to satisfy contemporary Spanish taste for sentimental drama, La Reina de Tabarin shows Franco to be a, a consummate professional, more than capable of fulfilling his brief. Nothing in the handling of La Reina de Tabarin transgresses the needs of the fairly conservative form it plays with. It's a brisk, colorful, efficient, ultimately impersonal work. The story is a gentle romp through Poor Girl Strikes It Big Cliché. For instance, when Professor Picardi tries to educate streetwise Lola in conventional speech and manners, a la Pygmalion, we see her balancing books on her head and struggling to pronounce difficult vowel sounds, lacking the avant-garde flourishes of Tinimos Teen Enos or the stylized noir chic of Labios Rojos. The film relies heavily on dialogue to move things along. In future productions, Franco would show a greater and greater aptitude for visual storytelling. Uh, in La Reina de Tabarin, he's forced to rely heavily on the story and the screenplay. But while La Reina de Tabarin may be quite square, directorially speaking, there are a few sequences of interest here and there. 
Franco watchers will relish the confrontation between Lola and a nosy female neighbor who turns into a cat fight on the balcony outside their apartments. That's true. Complete with a blaring dissonance music. There's also a beautifully lit and strikingly composed scene in which reformed love rat Fernando challenges the obnoxious Rodolfo to a duel. Yeah, that's true. Those two scenes are really good. The camera observes the somber downlit or dawnlit formalities through the wheel of a horse-drawn carriage. It's worth looking out, too, for Lola and Fernando's confrontation in a mood-lit Arabian, in which Franco uses carefully composed perspective shots to emphasize the emotional distance between the couple. Uh, there's also a great moment where Rodolfo, drunk at a society party, throws wine at a ornate mirror in order to stare high as a kite at his rippling reflection. However, the most striking moment comes during Michaela's performance of the song Ojos Negros, in which Franco has the actress walking down stage and out of frame actually step onto the camera dolly. The camera then glides around the set with Michaela singing in the foreground as the camera slides eerily behind her. It's a gorgeous trick shot that would become increasingly popular in years to come. Scorsese used it in Goodfellas, Spike Lee used it in Malcolm X, and Gerald Cargill's outstanding 83 film, Anks, adapted it for the Steadicam and used it for an entire movie. The technique may have been used before. La Reina de Tavern, but I'm unable to think of an example. It's certainly very unusual and shows Franco embracing the technical means at his disposal to elude naturalism and emphasis the delirium of performance so the heroine is quite literally transported by the camera. Such visual pleasures prove that Franco had not completely switched off his aesthetic ambition for the project. For the most part, however, La Rina de Tabarin is of limited interest, dated and not exactly thrilling. It's basically a museum piece. However, as an industry calling card, it's impressed film piece. Uh... Oh, an impressed film financiers, and therefore served his purpose. Establishing uh, himself as a safe pair of hands, Franco created an excellent relationship with producer Sergio Newman, one that would eventually lead to the most significant project of his career. Cast and crew. Uh, playing Lola, not Marquita, despite the French title, leading lady Michaela, a.k.a. Michaela Rodriguez Cuesta, has undeniable screen presence. The central image of the film is of Lola advancing toward the camera while singing and dancing, holding the viewer's attention with her piercing eyes and radiant energy. It's actually quite a hard-edged performance. Lola is forceful, quick-tongued, unafraid of men, and her makeup accentuates the sharpness of her eyebrows and her angular cheekbones. It's a hauntingly face... I'm sorry, it's a haughty face, just a shade short of cruel. She appeared again in Franco's next film, Vampirosis, 1930, followed by Richard Blasco's prototype spaghetti western, Duelo in Texas, 1963, and the same director's Le Tres Pe di Zorro, 1963. Ten years later, scenes from the latter popped up in a distinctly less salubrious context in the Eurocene softcore patchwork, The Adventures Galates de Zorro, a.k.a. Red Hot Zorro, 1972, alongside new material featuring Franco regulars Alice Arno, Roger Darton, and Evelyn Scott. Darina de Tabarin sees a first appearance of an actress who would later shine dazzlingly in the firmament of Franco's cinema, Soldan Ronda, here with just a fleeting non-speaking role as the Queen Consort of Brandenburg, attending the Tabarin to see Lola's performance. I forgot she was in this. 
I had to watch it again. She's so quick in the scene. Uh, music. Couples are romantic Spanish songs derived from popular poems, which found their way into Spanish cinema via Cupel Films, C-U-P-L-A. Uh, La Reina de Tabarin, Franco's only contribution to the subgenre, was bankrolled in response to Juan de Orunda's El Ultimo Cupul, a, Spanish, a massive Spanish hit which played the same theaters for a whole year, 1957. Location. Uh, the Theater de Ventres, scene of the film, is still in excellence today on the boulevard Montemarte in Paris. It featured prominently in Emile Zola's novel Nana, 1880 as a place where the eponymous heroine achieves celebrity. Zola's story, however, features an entirely more merciful social climber. Mercenary social climber. 1907, the same theater was host to the first feature-length European film, Le Infant Prodigy, directed by Michel Carré. Studio. Estudio Pelacedros, S.A. Madrid. Connections. The French release marks the beginning of Franco's longest business relationship with Paris-based producer Marcius, Marius Lesseur and his company Eurocene. Lesseur had recently pioneered the first French-Spanish co-production with La Melodia Misteriosa, Juan Fortuny, 1956, and De Luncontes, Juan Forte, 1957, and was now seeking new talent for future co-productions. He hit it off with Franco immediately, and the two men forged a working relationship that would perhaps that would persist throughout the next three decades. Notre Dame Cathedral pops up briefly. It would next resurface in Franco's cinema in considerably less frivolous context in the chilling slasher film Sadist of Notre Dame, 1979. The film revolves around a key visual trope in Franco's cinema, the stage performance of a beautiful woman. It's an image that will recur greatly in more fevered and perverse contexts throughout his career. Most definitely, I'll talk about that in my review. Yeah, there's stage on on stage performance and everything. Uh, okay, other versions. There are two strikingly different versions of the film. The original Spanish release, La Reina de Tabarin, and the French cut, Marquita de la Belle Tabarin. Most obviously, while the Spanish version is in color, the French version plays in black and white. Uh, I watched the Spanish version, the color one. Uh, it also admits the first 15 minutes of the original, losing an opening mo- montage of Madrid street scenes, a sequence showing Lola singing and dancing for passers-by and the establishing scenes at the heroine's house. It begins instead with a shot of the Theatres de Vertiz in Paris, not seen until much later in a Spanish version, after which we jump forward to spy on the philandering Fernando, who leaves one paramour swooning in a horse-drawn carriage while he jumps down and exchanges passionate kisses with another. By cutting back Lola's backstory, the French version makes Fernando the initial focus, a decision no doubt intended to exploit the casting of Ye Massard, who was a familiar face in French films at the time. But while it may have made commercial sense in filmmaking terms, the decision is flawed. The After 30 minutes, Fernando largely disappears from the film, and instead we concentrate on Lola's journey through the Parisian social scene. The changes also prioritize the high life in Paris over working-class life in Madrid and deny the heroine an introductory scene content for her context for her aspirations. To complicate matters, the French version features an extra scene not included in the Spanish original. It occurs after Lola's disastrous attempt to entertain upper-class Fernando 
at her ranchical lodgings and sees Fernando leave in anger. Finally, the French cut ends with Lula and Fernando walking slightly from the theater arm-in-arm into the Parisian dawn, omitting the original's valedictorian dialogue in praise of Spain. Press coverage. Uh, Reviewer also noted that Franco has waived, this time around, professional concerns more in tune with his restless youth and directs, according to the familiar mold for the genre of the film. A backhanded compliment, perhaps, and seeks to dismiss his previous work as youthful folly, but one that puts his finger on director's... Okay, um, okay so that's about it on that. Uh, so, um, so yeah, I uh, watched this film uh, yesterday for the first time. Um, I have the uh, copy that I got from Trash Palace, but it's in Spanish with no English subtitles. So I looked it up on YouTube and found it um, on there with Spanish subtitles, and I auto-translated in the options setting to translate them to English. Uh, So the subtitles were flawed, but serviceable in some parts. Uh, The singing parts were kind of all over the place, but uh, some of the standard dialogue and some of the monologues actually fit and seemed pretty accurate. So Um, so yeah, I watched this, and... uh, I enjoyed it. It was different. Um, I'm going to go over stuff that I saw, um, and then uh, I'm going to have talk to a friend of mine and uh, see what he thinks about this. So, all right. So, this is episode 69A, uh, color film, film number three, La Rina de Tabron. Like I said, I've watched it on YouTube and all that stuff. Um, I liked the lead. Definitely shed shades of uh, Lina Romay. And uh, I'm sorry, um, of uh, Soldad and uh, of his girlfriend at the time, you can kind of tell his type um, of what he thinks a leading lady and, and his preference. And definitely she was in that same type of mold. Um, I liked the apartment housing complex of all the neighbors together in that um, and uh, everything with that. So it's funny. So her, her guardian, the guy that plays Pepe, uh, reminded me of uh, my friend Willie. And Willie is a character in the films um, that I did, Love Blade, and the film uh, Chump Change, and uh, is also in uh, Sukibon Octopus Pot. So um, I just wanted to—he's uh, not going to really hang out, and well, he's, he's going to hang out in the episode, but uh, he's just kind of hanging out here in the background. Doesn't want to say too much, but I'm going to go ahead and pass him the microphone and see what he has to say. Uh, so Willie, uh, thanks for uh, hanging out with me today. Um, did you? Uh, like this film and everything, or what'd you think? Uh, yeah, uh, I kind of like the film, but, uh, I, I, I know you said that the guy kind of looked like me, that, uh, pe- peppy guy, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know about that, uh, I think you probably take it down. Here, here's the microphone back. Oh, okay, uh, well, thanks. I thought you'd say more, but, oh, yeah, okay, that's, that's cool. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I, did say that you did kind of look like Peppy, but yeah, 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 easy, dude. Just okay. So, but uh, either you're gonna talk or just hang. Okay, okay, okay. So I guess he's gonna hang out. He's gonna say too much, but yeah. So do do look at Pepe with his little mustache and. Okay, I'll give you my. You always every fat guy in my mustache looks like me. Uh, yeah, it's because that's what you look like. Just give me that mic, okay. Anyway, so, sorry about that. I try to have people that aren't really, like, reviewers on the show, but, you know, as people hang out here and kind of 
put them on microphone sometimes. So, all right, let me knock this out here. Sorry, guys. Um, so yeah, so uh, in this film, uh, we have uh, body of water. Uh, oh, sorry, on the Franco list. Jumping on that, we have a body of water sailboat and boat in a background on stage where uh, they're doing like a stage play. So uh, they have that painted as a backdrop, which I thought was pretty funny because you see the sailboat and water like over and over again in Franco films. Uh, then we have uh, no palm trees, really, no jungle sound effects, no chained up person in this. Uh, we do have a dance scenes on stage um, and not really stripping. We have the can-can dancers kind of, which is what they can get away with. So I'll kind of count that as that. Uh, number eight, club scenes dancing. Definitely we have a party uh, where people are dancing, and uh, we also have inside the club people dancing as couples in that. Uh, number nine, jazz music. Not really. We have more like classical and show music and Spanish music, a little jazzy and stuff. Maybe like one song, but really not that much. Uh, number 10 and 11, excessive zooms out of focus shots. That would be negative. No on both. Number 12, mirror shots. Yeah, there's like one or two, and then the reflection shot that uh, we talked about earlier. Um, which is really nice. Um, so yeah, there's a few in here. Uh, number 13, mind control themes. No. Number 14, magic tongue scenes. Uh, it's no Lena, so no magic tongue. No Lena lick a lot in this film. She's not even around yet. Uh, number 15, red light. Yes, I was happy to say. Uh, during on stage when she's doing uh, one of her numbers, they shine a red light on her um, when the uh, lead's on stage. So there's that one scene in that. Uh, 16, no sheepskin rugs, no masturbation in this film. Uh, number 17, mad scientists, no mad scientists. Number 18, fish tank shots, no. Number 19, talking parrot or talking animals, no, but they talk about parrots again in this film. Um, there's a, there's a scene where a guy's telling a joke and he's talking about a talking parrot and, uh, he goes on about that, which I thought was pretty funny that they hadn't try to like shoehorn that in uh let's see um yeah talking pair behind the curtain scene oh yeah also too when uh she goes over he goes over to visit her at her house and she says that the cat's sleeping behind one curtain and a parrot and it was her guardian and her friend and uh the cat sound like a tiger so it's funny it's like a, a talking parrot so uh number 20 in credits yes or no yes there is a fin fin at the end uh, number 21, handwritten notes or signs. Yes, there is. Uh, when she goes shopping and looks in the window, there's a couple of handwritten scenes on some dresses in the window that I thought was pretty funny. Uh, you can tell they're just written for the film. Uh, number 22, spiral staircase shot. Didn't catch any of that. 23, inept cops. Not really. Uh, 24, belly chains. That would be negative. Number 25, kink list. There is really none on this. Um, okay, uh, let's see what else. Um, dancing on stage. Okay, we got that. We got the parrot talk. Oh yeah, um, like he had talked about um, Stephen Thor. There's a good scene with uh, Lolita fights with female neighbor, and uh, it definitely sparks that sequence because the neighbor of hers is jealous of her and always calling out to her. And they finally keep getting closer and closer, and they start brawling on the on the uh, on the uh, balcony area, which is pretty cool. Um, and uh, the the duel scene, like he had mentioned, I noted was nicely shot. Uh, there's red light on stage, of course, and mirror scenes were really nice. Um, and it's cool, too, watching this. I watched this um, close, as I record this, uh, the end of December of uh, 2021. And this film ends with a New Year's 
taking place between 1913 and 1914. So uh, I thought that was kind of cool that they did that and the uh, changing of the new year. So sometimes it's nice when you have simpatico when you're doing your projects and such. So, all right, well, um, I think uh, again, give the plugs. Actually, you know what to do? Since he's like kind of here hanging out and doesn't want to get on the microphone that much, I'm going to go ahead and pass the microphone off to Willie Dew, um, known perhaps in the in the past, I'm going to go ahead and give him his credits. He was a member of uh, Willie Dew and the Dewdrop Kids and uh, did a few singles and, uh, of course, a couple acting credits. So um, I'm going to let him uh, do the plugs for me on that. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and you, after he gives the plugs, I'm going to um, have the uh, music play. And then we will jump on to film four, the second half of the double feature, and discuss Vampiresa's 1930. So, all right, I'm going to pass the mic off to Willie Dew, and he'll give you all the plugs. Thanks a lot for listening, and I'll hear you on the other side. There you go. Okay, uh, so uh, go ahead and download and uh, subscribe on your uh, favorite platforms. Uh, tell a friend and uh, share it. You tell a friend that's like the uh, Alpha Beta, uh, you know, Alan Hamill, you always say, uh, tell a friend. So, yeah, download, subscribe, tell a friend, uh, find, find wait, what's it say? Oh, oh, uh, get a hold of us, email, at francoobserver at yahoo.com, and, uh, you can find their page at, uh, Instagram, uh, Facebook, they got that there. And what's to say? Mission statement: Praise and in memory of Jess Franco, bringing the name and films of Franco to new eyes and ears. Uh, okay, well, yeah, uh, I'm doing this to help Jason out. And uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah. Hope you celebrate whatever you celebrate. All the good holidays, Krampus, all that, New Year's, and. Uh, Keep on listening, and he'll keep putting out those shows. All right, yay, bye. Hey, buddies, fellow Franco fans. Welcome once again to the Franco Observer Podcast. I am your host, Jason Rudy, from Desperate Visions Productions. And, um... This is the second film in the episode, episode 69B, um, and on this second half of the episode, we will discuss Vampiresa's 1930, Volando Hacia la Fama, also known as Gold Diggers of 1930, Flying Toward Fame. This is a Spain and France production, 1960. Alternative title, um, Some Like It Black. Because <laughs> this is some like, some like It Hot, which is funny. We'll talk about that later. Um, instead of the drag, they do blackface. It's just really interesting. So yeah, alternative titles. Uh, French title, Some Like It Black. Certains les préférents noirs. Uh, production company... Um, his bomber films Madrid CIF ESA again productions out of Valencia and French version ads Euroscene out of Paris theatrical distributors Spain uh, is uh, CIF ESA Valencia and then uh, France Euroscene out of Paris timeline uh, shooting dates on this circa December 1960 to February 
So yeah, December 1960 to February 1961, uh, about two months shoot, somewhere around there. Uh, classified for Spanish release, April 20th, 1961, Seville premiere, September 29th of 61. Um, well, that's a pretty, pretty quick turnaround. That's good. Uh, Madrid played March 8th, 1962. Barcelona, July 2nd, 1962. And finally, French visa issued uh, September 4th of 63. Theatrical running time, Spain, 105 minutes. France, 106 minutes. Uh, once again, this has a quite large cast and uh, credits, so I'm just going to kind of hit the um, high spots on this. Uh, cast, um, Michaela, again, returns as, uh, Dora, the actress in the film, or actress in the film within a film. Uh, she is, uh, Michaela Rodriguez Cuesta again. Uh, Antonio Aurores as Daniel Massat. Yvi Massard as Tony Fabian. Lena Morgan as Caroline Malone. Uh, Antonio Grisa, uh, returns, uh, as Odia, Dora's publicity manager. Which is cool because he was her guardian in the first film, and in this one he's her uh, publicity manager, so kind of similar part. Uh, Trio Alonso plays Lita, Manuel Alexandre, film director, Antonio Gomez, Escribo, plays Carlo. Okay, go through those. Uh, credits, uh, director Jess Franco, story Maria del Carmen, Martinez Roman, uh, Pio Belesteros, Adaptation and Dialogue, Jess Franco. Additional Dialogue, Antonio Ozores. Director of Photography, Eloy Mela. Editor, Alfonso Santacana. Art Director, Jose Aguero. Uh, background Music and Musical Director, Jose Pagan. Antonio Ramirez Zango. Executive Producer and Technical Production Supervisor, Sergio Newman. All right. Uh, okay, skip over all that. All right, so um, I'm going to go ahead and do the synopsis for this because I'm going to put my review um, at the end of this um, section that's, of course, taken from Murderous Passions, The Delirious Cinema of Jesus Franco, Volume 1 by Mr. Stephen Thrower. So, yeah, I'm going to go through and tell you his synopsis, production notes, uh, his review, and, and those things, and then I will follow it up with my solo review of the film. All right, synopsis, France, 1930. Daniel Massette and Tony Fabian, two friends who work as musicians and occasional stuntmen in the movie industry, meet and befriend Carolina Melata, who is poor, unemployed, and starving. Carolina is a musician, too, and they instruct... That's interesting. Hold on one second here. Okay. That was almost very similar to the last film. Um... Carolina is a musician, too, so they invite her to stay with them in an apartment block for struggling artists. Tony falls for Dora, a glamorous actress currently shooting a silent vampire film. Thanks to his penchant for playing the violin to soothe her nerves, she falls for him, too. Dora's finagling manager decides that the love affair will help boost his client's public profile and installs photographers and gossip column journalists in Dora's boudoir prior to Tony's arrival for a date. Despite initially blaming Dora, Tony forgives her and the two become an item. Just as their careers are taking off, talking pictures arrive. 
Tony, Dora, Daniel, and Carolina find their work options dwindling. One day, as they bemoan their circumstances in a Parisian park, they find banknotes blowing in the breeze. Joyfully collecting them up and deciding this is the windfall they need to turn their luck around, they fail to see that the money has spilled from the pockets of a dead man. Moroni, concealed in nearby bushes. The notes are counterfeits, and when a policeman sees the four friends leaving the scene, he raises the alarm. They are now suspected of murder. In need of a hiding place, they spot a visiting American jazz band who are waiting for a train to the south of France and trick them into boarding a train to Siberia. The four then take their place and head for their booking in Nice. However, the band were all black. The four friends must therefore black up to pull off the deception. Unbeknownst to them, the counterfeiters who kill Moroni, headed by Raddick and his tough-as-nails wife Lita, operate from the same venue. Dora stumbles into the basement printing workshop and discovers the truth, but is rescued by Daniel. Fortunately, the police have been tracking the four friends and arrive at the theater. Raddick and his wife are arrested, and the friends' onstage performances receive rapturous applause. All right, uh, production notes. The fruits of La Rina de Tabron's successes were not slow in coming. Franco's next project, Vampiresa's 1930s, was already in production when Michaela attended Tabron's Seville premiere on November 24, 1960. Commencement of shooting is hard to pin down accurately, but by February 61, Franco was definitely back behind the camera, and production was sufficiently announced by March 4, 61, for CIFESA to announce the movie as forthcoming later in the year. The film itself bears a deposito legal number dated 1960. This may indicate when the film first went into pre-production and the producers eager to have the film included in the 1960 Spanish film yearbook. Review. Okay, I'm just going to go through most of his. Um, Van Presen, 1930, set in Paris on the cusp of a new era, between the golden age of silent cinema and the arrival of the talkies, is frequently referred to by Franco admirers as a clever homage to American musicals and screwball comedies. It's either that or a ripoff, so blatant that even someone like myself, who can't stand Hollywood musicals, can spot the felony. Bolting together ideas from two well-known sources, Singing in the Rain and Some Like It Hot, Vampires' 1930 is a is certainly cheeky. Ultimately, however, it's too clumsy in construction, neither escaping the shadow of its source nor blending them into the satisfying new combination. Instead, it simply changes stolen horses midstream, leaping from Stanley Donnan's Dawn of the Talkies musical to Billy Wilder's classic comedy. Uh, let's see, Sing in the Rain, something like hot. Yeah, I haven't seen either of those two films, so it was uh, lost on me. But I, I do know the concepts of them and the frameworks. Uh, the first thing that needs to be cleared up, despite the title or the appearance of a spooky-clad caped Michaela creeping through a window at the start of the film, Vampires' 1930 has nothing to do with horror. The title actually translates as Gold Diggers of 1930, the vampires of the title being merely counterfeiters, and on a gentler note, hungry artists grabbing at the chance to make some dough at lean times. The title, along with elements of the story, 
is drawn from the Mervyn Leroy and Busby Berkeley musical Gold Diggers of 1933, released in 1933, about a group of struggling actors and playwrights during the American Depression. The opening scene, with Michaela climbing through a window to kill a sleeping male with a knife, turns out to be a film-within-a-film pastoche of Louis Feludai's silent serial Les Vampires, 1915-1916, itself a rather misleading titled project, being more concerned with crime and a pre-Dr. Mabuse mastermind than the faint horrors one might have expected. It's interesting, nonetheless, to note that Franco is once again flirting, however casual, with horror imagery. First, the maniacal murderer, Lord Marion, in the comedic Tenemas Eighteen Ounce, and now this. Uh, the opening section, with its comic depiction of life on a movie set, shows Franco already very confident with spoofing film genres, and indeed cinema itself. Evidently, having observed the petty absurdities of the industry while working as an assistant director in the 1950s, Franco squirreled away his impressions and then drew upon them here. Perhaps the most amusing scene is one in which Dora and her unscrupulous agent invite newspaper photographer and celebrity gossip columnists to hide in Dora's apartment and take pictures of her in the arms of her new lover, Daniel, to be used in a promotional scandal coverage. Dora and Daniel canoodle with, while a photographer's magnesium flash gun goes off like an explosion in a fireworks factory. It's a farcical, farcical gag, of course, and we're not really supposed to believe that Daniel would be so oblivious, but we play along and the scene doubles as a metaphor for the way the cinema manipulates our emotions. We know it's all big put-on with lights and cameras and men tucked away behind furniture brandishing unwieldy technology, but we allow ourselves to be seduced into ignoring the truth. With the amusing sight gags, Franco suggests that cinema is as powerful a seduction device as a kiss from a beautiful woman. Yet, aside from such playfulness, there is very little plot to go on around, with ten musical numbers making up more than a quarter of the running time, and much of the rest cribbed directly from the aforementioned sources. For all of its genre knowingness, for all the movie buff questions and cheeky magpie attitude, there's something missing here that makes me glad that Franco didn't persist with the genre. While I'm loath to dismiss a film seen without subtitles or English dialogue, uh, I now have to admit that Vampiresis 1930, though clearly a work of some wit, left me cold in a way that even the shallow spectacle of La Rina de Tabarin did not. Alright, cast and crew. Uh, ported over from La Rina de Tabarin were Miquelo, Yves Massard, Juan Ricolin, Antonio Garisa and Antonio Jimenez Escribano, while comedian Antonio Orores returned from Teeny Mouse 18 Aos. Osores had recently married actress Ella Montes. The latter would go on to appear in 99 Women, The Girl from Rio, and Amoreto has la Moretes. Uh, Co-writers Pio Belacetros would really collaborate on Franco's The Sadistic Baron von Klaus in 1962. Music. Franco presents a selection of songs by industry giant Charles Trinet, including a redemption of his most famous tune, La Mer, later reworked by Bobby Darren into the hit single Beyond the Sea. La Lara, 
a song during a scene in which Lida is approached by Radek about 40 minutes into the film, would later play a key role in the narrative of La Morette, Selva Un Blues, Death Whistles the Blues, 1962, where it appeared under the name Blues Tejado. Locations. Much of the location's work is shot in the streets of Paris and on the banks of the scene. The credits roll over the ritzy lights of the Pigalle district. When the action moves to Nice in the south of France, Franco shoots the city's beautiful Hotel Negresso, the seafront facade of which, glowing with neon in evocative nighttime shots, remains the same more than 50 years later. Studio. Estudios Balestro, S.A. Madrid. Uh, okay, Connections. Is Vampiresa's 1930 a case of plagiarism or a homage? You be the judge. The plot of Stanley Donnan's Singing in the Rain features Gene Kelly as a popular silent film star, a singer, dancer, and stuntman embroiled in a artificially arranged affair with a Hollywood actress. Vampiresa's 1930 splits the Gene Kelly character into two roles, Tony and Daniel, and reduces their professional and social standing uh, either because Franco preferred poor characters or because the life of a poverty-stricken musician costs less to put up on the screen than the life of a major movie star. It's true. Uh, Franco softens the female lead in Singing in the Rain. It's a shallow, selfish starlet played by Jean Hagen, but retains the notion of the film studio exploiting her romantic connections to increase her popularity. A major plot development in Singing in the Rain concerns the studio system being... Th- thrown into turmoil by the arrival of the talkies, specifically the jazz singer, 1927. Uh, Vampiresa's 1930 not only copies this idea, but stages its own jazz-themed talkie. However, Franco chose not to borrow the denouncement of Singing in the Rain involving Gene Kelly's girlfriend lip-singing for the exploitative Gene Hagen character, Perhaps this detail, with its jibe at inauthenticity, would have been a little too ironic. Critics have been kind in asserting that the film is an affectionate homage to classic Hollywood. Singing in the Rain was made in 1952 and released in Spain in 1953. That's only eight years earlier than Vampires' 1930. The pilfering of a major plot idea from Billy Wilder's Some Like It Hot the heroes posing as a female jazz band in order to avoid detection, is now even more brazen. Franco must have seen the film in France, where it was released in 1959, on one of his frequent visits. The fact that it didn't secure a release in conservative Spain until 1963 meant that he could actually steal a march on Wilder, at least in the eyes of Spanish viewers. Uh, the racial twist uh, on Some Like a Hot is also quite tasteless. The heroes, quotations, black up to pose as African-American jazz musicians while diverting the unfortunate Negroes on a train to Siberia. It seems to me that these homages are basically just acts of shameless theft, commercial ideas nicked from the popular Hollywood films of the day, rather as Italian horror films of the 70s and 80s ransacked American hits for their plot devices. The only element that could reasonably be called a homage to an earlier form of cinema is the film within a film starring Michaelia, 
an affectionate and beautifully stylized evocation of Louis Villon's ten-part silent film serial Les Vampires, 1915-1916, which fe- featured a fetishly attired female cat burglar called Irma Vep, an anagram of vampire. Terrorizing rich old fools in turn-of-the-century Paris, French director Georges Fernou was also a fan of Felote during the driving the title of his classic Le Vaux Sans Visage, Eyes Out of Face, uh, from a Falud short and directing a remake of Master Avenger. Okay. Um, incidentally, Flati had himself directed something in the region of 700 films. Wow. Including many one-reelers in his 20-year career, making even Franco look like a slacker. <laughs> uh, Michaelia sports a Spider Woman dress that anticipates the imagery of the diabolical Doctor Z. While Lena Morgan, now a major Spanish TV star, performs the very first striptease in a Franco film. Well, almost a striptease. She only takes off her sweater. The counterfeiters are headed by a married couple called the Radix, a villainous surname recurring from Labijos Rojos and used many, many times later. At one point, we see Lydia Raddick menacing the bound Michaela with a large cutlass, a quasi-comical image of menace to which Franco would return in Midnight Party, 1975, and Opolo de Fuego, 1978. The film title references two classic Busby Berkeley musicals, Gold Diggers of 1933 and Gold Diggers of 1935 in which Spain were called Vampiresas 1933 and Vampiresias 1935, respectively. Other versions, an export version released in the south of France did the rounds as Some Like It Black, a title that may be outrageous, but at least has the virtue of confessing where half the film's inspiration came from. Uh, All right, I'm going to skip the press coverage of it, and... um, do this quick little semi-break and coming back on this other end with my review of Vampiresses 1930 and see what actually follows the Franco list. All right, well, I just watched uh, Vampiresses 1930 and uh, it was a pretty interesting film. Um, It's kind of cool watching it back-to-back with um, the uh, one he did... uh, Right before this, um, uh, let's see, the Larina de Tabern, because uh, it has some of the same uh, main cast in it, uh, like I mentioned before, Michaela and, and her guardian and uh, a few of the other leads. So, yeah, it was decent. Um, I could see why Stephen Thrower didn't really care for it. Uh, there were some things that were kind of cheesy and just a lot of musical numbers. Um, I did like a lot of the music, though, in it. Uh, it was a cool jazz thing, and that actually helped um, push the film along, although, you know, in theory, 10 numbers is quite a bit for a film. So, But, uh, yeah, so um, I'm going to go ahead, and uh, since we kind of went, went over his review, and he was pretty thorough with it, I'm going to hit the uh, Franco list, uh, the list I always mention every episode now for 69 episodes or so uh, of things that we see over and over again in the Franco universe. So let me see. Uh, number one, body of water. Yes, there is. Um, we see uh, the um, the river right there, and we see another body of water um, later on in the film. Um, but uh, yeah, and then um, let's see. Number two, sailboat. We do see a sailboat. Uh, just one basic one, or actually a boat more than sailboat. So. 
but uh, but it's only one. It's almost faint, and that's on a very long shot, so it's barely anything. Uh, number four, palm trees. Yes, we see palm trees during the scene when um, they're driving uh, um, after they uh, uh, go in disguise as the um, African-American band there from Africa, so... Actually, it wouldn't be American there, African band. Uh, so, yeah, we see that there. Uh, number five, jungle sound effects. No jungle sound effects, but I noticed there's, like, a lot of weird, like, sounds in the background that go through a lot of the film. Um, just weird, like, bird sounds. Like, this stuff in the background. It's very faint, but if you turn it up and listen, you can hear it, like, in the background track. It's kind of interesting. So, uh, number six, chained up person. That would be a negative. Uh, number seven, dance scenes on stage stripping. Well, there's dance scenes on stage, and she does do a dance number where, like I had Stephen Thorne mentioned, she takes off her sweater, and then uh, we see a scene where Michaela's singing a number, and she strips to go to the bathtub. We don't see anything, because it's Spain, and you know they don't show nudity, but uh, the uh, camera goes to the floor. So yeah, there's, there's definitely some dance scenes on stage, and the uh, idea of stripping is going through, but definitely no nudity. Uh, number eight, club scenes dancing. That would be, yes, there's two different scenes where they're in a club and everybody's dancing and having a good time. Number nine, jazz music. Yes, very much. Uh, film starts off with a jazz tune uh, in the credits and uh, starts opening right away with that. And jazz is a big part of this film. And you see why, why Jess Franco loves jazz. So, uh, Number 10 and 11 usually go together. Excessive zooms and out-of-focus shots. Not really on these. Uh, this film was good on that. I uh, played it pretty safe. Kept a lot of medium shots and uh, really no zooms on this. Uh, number 12, mirror shots. Yeah, there's a great mirror shot where she, uh, McKay, like I said before, uh, I believe it's a scene where she's in, th- in front of three mirrors singing. And then there's also like two or three different mirror scenes in the film that are pretty cool shots. Um, number 13, mind control theme. No. Number 14, magic tongue scenes. Well, no Lena, so that means no magic tongue. Uh, number 15, red light. No red lights in this. Number 16, sheepskin or masturbation. None of that. Uh, 17, mad scientist. No, although uh, we do see uh, Michaela as a vampire in the beginning of the film, and she uh, kind of acts like this kind of actress from a foreign land, and she's very exotic and stuff, and that part I thought was pretty cool, but it's about as far as you get with any kind of monsters in this film. Uh, 18 fish tank shots no 19 talking parrots uh, there or talking animals there is a part where uh, this guy is bringing his birds in front of this talent scout and they supposedly they talk and he's trying to get them to talk and so they talk about the talking birds but that's about it uh, and 20 end credits yes or no yes it says fin at the film so we get that right away uh, and let's see uh, 21 handwritten notes or handwritten signs yeah I made a mention there was writing on the window when she goes in the beginning at the cafe where uh, we see different things uh, on the Italian restaurant in the beginning when she, the lady off the street comes in to uh, try to get some food. Uh, okay, spiral staircase, not really. We see only sorry, one staircase shot, uh, but not a spiral staircase. Uh, 23, inept cops. No, actually, the, the cops in this are really good. They follow the uh, people all the way through, and it's the four people that actually uh, stumble upon what's going on and uh, explicitly lead the cops to them. So the cops aren't inept, but they don't do a lot of the job, but they're good in this film. Uh, number 24, belly chains. That would be negative. And 25, kink list. There is none in this film. 
All right. So um, I thought this film was charming. Uh, it was kind of funny, like in a Three's Company kind of way. Um, if you like musicals, which I'm not a huge fan of, but I can I can uh, watch them in small doses if they're of any substance. And uh, this was okay. Um, it starts with like the vampire actors and the film crew. That was a really cool start uh, right off the beginning. You film within a film. Uh, and you see the film set, and yeah, that was pretty neat. Um, and then you have, um, what I liked is the kayfabe aspect, which I mentioned, where this woman's supposed to be this foreign-type person, and she has this whole history built up around her, um, and it's all just total bullshit, so kind of like wrestling, which is funny. Uh, so I like that part of it. Um, let's see. There's a spider. Uh, oh, yeah, uh, Michaela wears a spider dress number and, and dresses, which is pretty cool, with the three mirrors, and that was like the di- future diabolical Dr. Z coming up in a few films. So we see a dress similar to that, the spider's on the back instead of the front. Uh, let's see, we have um, Music In. Yeah, okay, the Music In, that was a pretty cool sequence uh, where they all live, all the musicians and that. Uh, that was a good sequence. Everybody's jumping around, playing music, and uh, like I said, this film is really full of music. It was interesting that the two uh, evil characters, Radic, which is a name Franco uses later on quite a bit, and his wife is evil character named Lena, L-I-N-A, which was pretty funny that there's Lena and uh, Radic, and it comes forward in quite a few of his films later on. Uh, let's see, we have the, oh yeah, the, in the film too, the film within the film, there's a cool female band that plays, uh, and they're like all like uh, wearing fancy dresses and kind of like uh, Marilyn Monroe looking gals. Um, and uh, they're all dressed in pink dresses and green dresses and playing instruments, and they look really cool in this film. Uh, and, of course, they're dubbed and everything. Um, dubbed voices. Oh, yeah, so... Okay, so, yeah, 2021, 2022, and even before that, uh, the blackface thing, and this does not fly. Uh, it has them dubbed in really weird, like, kind of jungle, like, uh, fake speak, and the overdubbing on them is really terrible. It doesn't even sounds like it's in another room that they're, the, the dubbing's coming in over them. It's like, and just really bizarre stuff. Um, it's f- interesting that they have like the different levels of the blackface, and they do the drag, and some of the guys like one of the guys, that's the comic relief guy, and they both take a fancy to him, thinking he's a female. And But they have the blackface, but they have like the white arms with no makeup on their arms, so it's just like, really, dude? Come on, they're wearing dresses, and they're guys, and you see hair coming out of the top of their chest, and white arms, but they have black face, so... I don't know. Uh, it's just really fucking stupid, but anyway. But yeah, so they, they do that with this film, and... Uh, push it through and they do the black angle a lot and a lot of racism too she calls this lady uh, instead of the younger brother calls him your little monkey i was like jesus man so yeah there's quite a few racist stuff in this but uh so yeah that was uh of course uh you know fortunately it was time and then uh, spain and all that stuff um so let's see um oh yeah she goes yeah uh yeah lena she does two two things i written down that i was like wow that was pretty hardcore racist she goes uh you're so bizarre you probably find those uh you find the beast attractive or you find them beautiful. And she's like talking about the people on stage playing the, the supposedly the African band. And then she goes, uh, what are you watching those freaks? It's like, geez, dude, they're like hired help that you bring in to play for your club. And you're calling them freaks and just ugly and this and that stuff. So she's just so, so evil in this film, Lena. So, uh, but yeah, so I don't know. That was my takeaway from this. Um, this was Franco's fourth film. You can totally tell it's like a studio film and it's like a big musical and stuff. And uh, it's good that he didn't continue on this route because if he did, he would probably have just done a few films and then just faded out because it's total, you know, typical um, big budget film. Nothing really spectacular about it. 
It's a crowd pleaser. Nothing, you know, great. Uh, the next film, though, he does The Awful Dr. Orloff, of course, begins him on his beautiful path of what he is to become. So, anyway. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's cool to kind of see how any kind of craft, how somebody gets to the point that they're at. So, yeah, so here he's doing his film and not really putting in a lot of his touches, but, you know, doing his cool stuff. So, um, so yeah, that's going to wrap up this part, episode 69B. Uh, earlier in the first half, I brought in uh, a friend of mine uh, who was hanging out, Will. He had uh, asked to be on because he said uh, something has to do with 69, he has to be on it. So he's he's a fucking pig. So anyway, but yeah, so he uh, wanted to be on the episode, so I let him on. So so yeah, this is 69 episodes in, uh, first episode of the new year. And uh, looking at everything, it looks like uh, if we do one a week, by the end of the year, it'll take us to about like 120 for the end of the year. And then uh, that'll take us to, uh, after that, about maybe one more year, and then we can knock off all the Franco films. So, so it looks like we got about two years left of this, so or, or less if we do more than one a week. So, all right, well, let's see if we can last two more years, my friends. So it looks like about a three-year trip. We've already got a year and change in, so uh, let's keep on this path. Um, if you like this and you want to donate to me, I would appreciate it uh, during this time. There's always a donation button on the episodes and on the page, so check it out if you feel inclined to. It's always good luck for you, too, um, by the way. Uh, also, too, of course, download, subscribe all the episodes. Uh, on your, they're all on your favorite platform. Also, tell a friend. Share the episodes. Uh, let people know about the Frank Observer podcast. Uh, if you like it, please let others know, and uh, let's keep growing this audience, because Franco is such a niche, but if we could connect all the niches, then it would be a really nice, cool, like, spider web, so, and we like spiders, so let's go with that. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, and uh, if you ever want to um, ask to be a, a reviewer on any of the episodes, please get a hold of me and let me know. I'm always down to... Uh, See if there's a spot on something we haven't done yet. Right now, we're at the beginning of the Franco episodes catalog, doing uh, Orloff and so forth next. So that's where we're at. We're going to go all the way up to uh, about the Sold Odd films and then jump after where we're going off after that. So, uh, so yeah, uh, we're at FrancoObserver at Yahoo.com. And uh, we got a Facebook page and we also have an Instagram page. You can get a hold of me there as well. And uh, there you go. So, all right. Uh, hope you all are having a great new year. And uh, things will go good for you this year, hopefully, in the year of 2022. I like the three twos, 222. Two, two. So, I think that might be good luck. So, I hope it is good luck for all of us. So, be good, be strong, and uh, let's go out and have some fun. Adios. Have a good day.